teams sit right on the baseline. The big fella from New Zealand. When we cut him off baseline, he started walking in there. Welcome on into the Baseline Podcast. Uh, we had a New Zealand guest uh, on our last show, and before that was a United States guest, so we're switching up again. We have one of the OGs of Blazers Twitter, Brandon Goldner. Brandon, how are you going today? Yo, what's up? I'm good. Uh, yeah, definitely not from New Zealand. Uh, wish I were, though. It's actually, uh, as an aside, that is, it's there's the potential that we may be moving to New Zealand in a year for a year. So fingers crossed, but uh, not finalized yet. Oh, that w- that would be awesome, man. I um, it's a it's a great place. It's kind of strange though because since the pandemic and, and I haven't been able to come back to the states to see basketball, I keep saying to people, "I wish I could get back to the states." And then all the people I chat to on my podcast are like, "I don't know what you're talking about." We're trying and to leave. <laughs> <laughs> For sure. How? How big is NBA basketball there? Like, I because I, I mean, I don't know a ton about Australia or New Zealand, but like, I listen to No Dunks, right? Yeah. Like, Lee Ellis um, talks a lot about his time as a kid growing up in Australia, and blah, 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 but like, how popular is NBA stuff there? Uh, it's pretty popular, man. Like, uh, it's as far as basketball goes, um, it's it's the one I'm one the number one participation sport amongst kids, and the NBA is like, I think at a star level, that's where it's huge, like the fandom for like guys like Dame, Kyrie Irving, KD, like it's it's huge down here. And I, I think that probably reflects well on the like the global status of the NBA that places like Japan, you know, Brazil, New Zealand, Australia have that crazy fandom. Like that's it's it's pretty big down here. For sure. Oh nice. That's awesome. Yeah, it's it's cool. It's cool, man. Yeah. Um like I feel that the NBA has just done a great job of getting things down here. And um the only problem is that is that in New Zealand, there's like people, they don't have a lot of access to NBA media, like, because not a lot of people use Twitter. So they like, they watch like right. Skip Bayless and that sort of stuff. And I'm just like, <laughs> oh no, because they don't understand that they, they think that there's not much good media out there. <laughs> I mean, if I were only listening to Skip Bayless and Stephen A. Smith, I would think the exact same thing. So I can't really blame them, you know? Um, <laughs> And obviously, like the time difference too, that's rough. I mean, people complain in the states about like you know, like a a game at seven o'clock Pacific, and the people on the East Coast can't watch it. But like, I can't imagine living somewhere not in the U.S. You know, be it Australia, New Zealand, or the other direction. You know, in Europe, I mean, people are either staying up crazy hours or getting up early to watch. But yeah, so yeah, shout out to that. That's dedication. Yeah, it, it is. I mean, like, out time difference is is pretty good here for West games. Um, but like the playoffs will be on um with a normal slate in a normal year and it'll be like 4 a.m 6 a.m 8 a.m are the east games um and i mean obviously they're not gonna be great in the states anyway but um yeah but that's all right usually they're shitty first round matchups anyway so i just wait for the west <laughs> yeah oh for sure yeah i if i had to watch blazers games at four in, in the morning like i just i would skip those ones i would sorry i mean i would just watch it later yeah. like there's just no way i don't I love the Blazers, but I don't love them that much. Yeah. I also love sleep. Yeah, um, sleep is. Good. We're gonna we're gonna rip right in here. Um, uh, for our listeners, we're just gonna be a bit of a Blazers centric one. Sort of have about one in probably five or six podcasts. It's just Blazers centric. So um, season's finished now, Brandon. I I um I I feel like as someone that that covers the team as well as someone who's a fan like i don't know if i call myself a fan i wanted to see obviously the blazers make the the second round and obviously win a title all that sort of shit but the the deficiencies of the roster the way it was built the coaching everything came together to show in that first round that the team and franchise just wasn't good enough yeah i i agree and it does suck because I do think that despite, like, I have a lot of criticisms of Neil Olshay, his time as general manager, well, president of basketball operations, whatever his title is. But the Blazers in that first round series, I think they were more talented than the Nuggets, given the injuries, given the fact that Nuggets didn't have Jamal Murray, their second best player, and they were missing Will Barton. I think the Blazers should have won. Um, 
despite their their roster construction. And so that was super disappointing. I mean, I was pretty convinced the Blazers would win that series. Um, and and they just didn't. And it was super, super disappointing. Um yeah, I mean, I I was actually fortunate enough to get to attend all of the home games this year. Um, so I you know, I got to see a loss, a win, and then and then that game six loss at home. Um, yeah, I I definitely expected more. It was disappointing. Um, I know there's a lot to talk about. It. It feels like so much has happened with the Blazers in the last like four days. Yeah, <laughs> it's it's like it's like twenty different news cycles packed into like four days. It's wild. Yeah, yeah. I, I, it's tough because like you rip right into the off season and I feel like I haven't even truly reviewed the the regular season and, and the postseason in terms of just trying to dive a bit deeper on the stats. I mean, that's not going to change anything in terms of obviously the result, but I feel like there are some, probably some narratives and some storylines. Like um, I'm, I wasn't, a, I'm not a huge, wasn't a huge fan of Terry Stotts. I think he was a, he was a good offensive coach that got this team to being one of the best offensive teams of the last 10 seasons. Um, and that I think that the organization does deserve some credit um, for giving the best players freedom and, and offensive sets. I think, I think that they deserve some credit for that and to have continue to have top five offenses when you have a lot of injuries has, has been great. Um, but defensively with, they were lacking, and I think that that's a combination. In my eyes, that's a combination of personnel. That's a polite way of putting it. <laughs> I mean, yeah, one of the worst defenses of all time in ranking 29th. Um, I mean, I've gone on about that multiple times, but I should probably, uh, yeah, rip into it a bit more for the listeners. Um, ranking 29th in defensive rate rating in the regular season. I think that there's a combination of personnel there, but when I, I was talking um, with a Brooklyn Nets beat writer that I had on the on the pod about two weeks ago. And uh, I didn't say anything at all about the Blazers. We were just talking about random teams in the Western Conference. And he said, oh, and I watched the Blazers the other day. And he said, the main thing that I noticed was that the defensive rotations were so bad. And I was like, here's a guy who doesn't have a horse in the race. And he's talking about how the rotations are poor. So uh, in my eyes, there's a bit of it as personnel. Obviously, you've got guys like Mello and Cantor and and, and, CJ and Dame who are like, maybe around league average or a little bit lower. Um, and then you've also got systems like being able, you know, knowing when to go under on the scout and and uh, making the correct rotations, things like that. Yeah, I and I do want to get, I hope we do have a chance to get into their roster construction a little bit later, but let's, I, on the coaching, yeah, like I was a pretty vocal proponent of coach thoughts for a really, really long time, uh, for years. Um, and I admit that maybe some of that is me being biased because Terry Stotts is like a legit, like good human being. Um, yeah. And I, you know, the a quick story that he reached out to my godmother when she had hip surgery. What? Um, and it was like right after he had had like a double hip replacement. And I like just emailed the blazers really quick. Like, Hey, like my godmother's a huge fan of coach Stotts. Like, can he just send her a quick email? Yeah. Well, he didn't send her an email. He called her and left a message, but that wasn't good enough because he didn't actually get a chance to talk to her. So he called back the next day and they talked for like 25 oh, minutes about how man. it's, oh, it's going to be so great. And you're going to get to walk around and stuff. And like yeah. I'm hiking now and it, it legit made her feel better. Um, so I admit that maybe some of my Stotts proponent yeah. takes were maybe colored by the fact that I thought I was a good person. Yeah. That said, over the last few months, I mean, it was pretty clear the things that he was good at as a coach were not outweighing the things he was not very good at anymore. And for me, it had it had finally slightly tipped me toward, okay, it's time for a replacement. And your point about the defense, it's a good one. Look, I mean, Coach Stotts, he led a top 10 defense yes. a couple different times. Yeah. The problem with that is that was a different era of NBA basketball, right? Like Coach Stotts's defensive philosophy is super conservative. Um, drop coverage where the big is really hanging back when people are screening up top. And, you know, with bigs nowadays that can handle, that can work in space, that can shoot, that just doesn't work anymore. And he was asked at press conferences the last couple of years, hey, Coach Stotts, you're going to mix up your defensive philosophies. And he was pretty salty about it, saying, no, like, we're good. Like, I thought about it, but we're not going to change it. And you just can't, you have to evolve with the times, right? Something that worked with Robin Lopez in 2014 may not work in 2021. And we saw that it didn't. So yeah, I think like something about coach Stotts, his general stubbornness and unwillingness to change 
Um, I think that's ultimately, I think that kind of overarches a lot of different problems, which ultimately is why he was, he was let go. Yeah. Yeah. And, and I think that like, this is one thing in terms of when I've got to know the team a bit better is that the organization and the people that work in it, like, it seems like there is a genuinely a really good culture and that the way that things are run, like it, it seems like a good organization. I got the chance to um, listen to Neil O'Shea chat for about an hour, an hour and a half um, at Sports Business Classroom in Vegas in 2019, and oh, nice. it, it was it was good. And like he talked, you know, he talked about um, certain things, and and like I think what I liked is that he seemed pretty direct, and he was trying to give lessons to to, to the younger people that were there, and and I and I seem to see quite a bit of that reflect through in in terms of the way the organization is run. I think this is the the hardest part though is when you try and sort of have those family vibes in terms of um, long service and um, and trying to keep something together is that sometimes you can potentially let things drag out longer than they than they should and and yeah it's it's tough it's a tough one with the coaching man because at the end of the day if we hadn't seen some of the injuries that that we'd seen potentially this is a different team I mean you look at Nurkic is a guy and we will obviously talk on him a bit later but he's a guy who would, you would probably even if we were to rinse him because he got fouled he fouled out in the playoffs you know that if he plays for the whole regular season this team probably ranks between 17 and 24 on defense and that's probably enough for another five wins um so the coaching is a tough one I, I don't think it's fair to to fully blame um the coach for the results at the end of the day the gm's there you've got assistance as well and I also think that if you know that you don't have a good defensive coach uh, and that you've got a great offensive coach, then probably you, you need to try and load the roster with more defensive players. Yeah, um, I think that that's really fair. And, you know, thinking about the roster construction, what you have in my view, Neil Olshay, his, his, the thing he's really banking on is that Damian Lillard and CJ McCollum can work, can be a, can that you can build a championship roster around that. People have been saying for many, many years, questioning, can you really put two smaller, undersized, defensively deficient guards next to each other and, you know, put the pieces around them to have a winning team, especially when the second guard is not an all-star level player. And like, okay, granted, it's in the West. Maybe if you're in the East, he would be an all-star level player. Um, and it's. I think it's a failure of Neil O'Shea that Damian Lillard's best teammate has been LaMarcus Aldridge, who left in 2015. Well, that was six years ago, right? Yeah. But the other thing, too, is like LaMarcus Aldridge and his skills um, and his weaknesses, it just was a much more natural fit with the skills and weaknesses of Damian Lillard. So, um, you know, with that, with that said, I do think uh, you mentioned the thing about the organization having like a family feel. I think that something about you know, from the ownership to Olshay to Stotts, you had really, really good continuity. Everyone always seemed to be on the same page all the way down to the players. And I really do want to credit Neil Olshay for playing a part in that and Terry Stotts too. Um, and I will say that I think Paul Allen, you know, the, the former owner of the team, he really liked basketball. He was into basketball. He was at the games. He was really involved, maybe too involved, right. In like personnel decisions or player decisions in the draft. But when he died, you know, Jody Allen took over and it's, it is not clear. And that's maybe even generous. It seems obvious to me that she doesn't care as much about basketball as Paul, yeah. which is completely fine. Yeah. Um, but when it was time for Olshay and Stotts to renegotiate their contracts a couple years ago, um, they both got extensions. And I, I think you can really look to that as maybe Jody Allen just wanted again to maintain that continuity and keep stuff rolling. But to your point, maybe they should have taken a more critical look at that time, is this the right coach? Is this the right GM? Is the philosophy about Olshay's team building, is this really going to work? And I, I think it's proven that it hasn't. We've had nine years. It's proven that it hasn't. So. Yeah, yeah, agreed. And and I think that, w that what I did like about Terry Stoltz was that um, the draft seemed like less of a crapshoot in terms of some of those second rounders where ultimately the reason that a lot of teams end up uh, winning championships and are not that many come from small markets is that you're able to get value in the draft in the second round. So Olshay might get credit for, for a lot of those second rounders that have turned out, but you can't 
you don't bring someone from being a 37th pick in the draft or 40th or 55th or those all those guys that ended up being rotation players, Connaughton, Crabb, Trent Jr., unless you have strong development and that comes with coaching, skill development, um, player development, coaches within the franchise. So some credit is, needs to be given there, but that needs to be given on both sides, not just given to Neil. Back to then Neil's dis- a higher decision of uh, the top line decisions in season trades. I think, yep, some 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 decent things are ha- happening. Uh, have happened. Um, you know, we've seen yet to see if the Norman Power Gar- Gary Trent Jr. one works out. But I feel that in terms of draft picks, recently it's probably 50-50. Obviously, Swanigan didn't work out. Um, Zach Collins is one I, I that if if someone didn't work out because of injury, that that's a really tough one. But at the end of the day, O'Shea's record overall, when you add in some of the, the deals that have been given out, I'd say he's probably, it'd be below 50-50. So it would be like a B or maybe even a, a C plus, you know, B minus C plus. Yeah. And the, the Zach Collin, that that one's tough. And I, I know it's always easier in hindsight to say you should have drafted this person or that person, but just listen to this list of names that they could have had in 2017 yes. rather than Zach Collins. They could have had Jared Allen, John Collins, Bam Adebayo, OG Ananobi, or Donovan Mitchell. Like, and it's not, the GM is supposed to have some extra foresight than someone like me, right? Um, And I also understand, again, they don't have the benefit of hindsight when they're doing it at the time, but that that was really rough that that draft went the way it did. Um, And the biggest thing I would say for Olshay, it's like you mentioned it, like a lot of the moves that he's made have been pretty decent moves. Like I think the last offseason was a great offseason. I thought Covington was a great addition, right? I thought getting Ennis Cantor for nothing was really, really smart. Um, But that doesn't change that the big structural stuff that got the Blazers to this point, that big structural stuff, Olshay got mostly wrong. And so even if you're making changes around the margins, and making smaller changes to a flawed roster. Well, why is the roster flawed in the first place? It's because of Olshay. And again, like people have been saying, you know, I have been saying lots of other people. I hate when people do that. I just did like, oh, people are saying, <laughs> okay, I have said, you can't really build a championship team around Damian Lillard and CJ McCollum. There's no evidence that that structure of an NBA team can be successful to that high of a level. And if you think that Damian Lillard is an MVP caliber player, then he deserves to have a roster around him that reflects that. Yeah. So yeah, I, I like, I don't know. I, I'm, as you could probably tell in me talking about this, I'm not the biggest fan of Olshay and it's, I mean, I don't know if you want to get into the press conference he gave today, but that was troubling to say the least. Yeah. yeah. Agreed, man. And I, and I think that like the pro, the problem with the pro Olshay and pro Stotts, it's not, a, it's not a problem that, that these two gr- groups exist. It's like you're you're trying to, and this is a thing that happens in media too much. It's like people are saying, no, you can't sit on the fence. You can't like both or hate both. Uh, you either hate one or you hate the other. <laughs> so I, this is where I've liked the things that you've been saying is like, hey, yeah, we, um, you know, you can do one and you can still do the other. So my my issue is that we the team is in that predicament um, and the 2016 offseason obviously meant that you know, lots of contracts were handed out that that screwed the team for the next few years, and then at the end of the day, um, that money was spent after you know getting to a second round or whatever it was. Um, and then later on, uh, after Jody Allen took over, and we saw the crazy high payroll, which I think twenty nine and twenty twenty, at least one of those seasons, the Blazers had one of the highest uh, payrolls in the league. So at the end of the day it's a business so if if you're just a second round team or a first round team and you're going to go and march into the to the owner's office after the season and you're looking at saying you know what are, what are our payroll projections going to be anybody that knows what they're doing in terms of finances are probably going to be like hey maybe we shouldn't go into the luxury tax because we're just a first or second round team now whether you think that's right or wrong around having Damian Lillard on the roster at the end of the day um they went all in uh, and and they basically fucked it up. You know, they they spent a whole bunch of money on guys and it didn't work out. And then now we've started to see moves around the margins, but move the first moves around the margins were like you said last year. They went all in in the off season. They used their first round picks to get Covington. They got Cantor. Um, I actually liked the Derek Jones Jr. move. We can we can talk a little bit about that later. And now when that didn't work, then you went to coaching. 
So my my issue almost is now it's like Dame is 30. He's probably got two, maybe three seasons left at, at this high level. Um, but you're not going to see another level of improvement from CJ. So the coaching could improve the defense. But if you're trying to win playoff series at the highest level, then we're only going to get small adjustments now because the, the, the roster is as it is with these key pieces. Yeah, and something else about the defense too, like, you know, NBA players are human. So this is not a video game where you're adjusting the sliders and you're able to mock up a better defense. Like if you're exerting more energy, physical and mental energy, more focus on defense, then it may impact your offense. Like, I mean, we see that a lot, right? Like, um, and so... I agree with you. I think that there could definitely, if you, if you didn't change anybody on the roster and the roster will look different next year, um, whether the Blazers want it to or not. And I think that they do, but even if you had the exact same roster next year and you had a different coach, this is not a championship level core. I I mean, I, I would, I would defy anybody to logic out how this roster is a championship competing team. Now, having said that it is a little disappointing because of the West is so wide open yeah. this year. Like this could have been another year when they could have snuck into the conference finals. And, you know, I mean, sometimes it's, it's about luck and it could be about the bad luck of another team that your team then gets to take advantage of. Cause the Blazers were, were pretty healthy. And also like Zach Collins was getting at least sort of close. Like there's an alternate universe in which, you know, Anybody, anybody other than Dame hit a shot in either overtime or double overtime of game five, the Blazers win that and end up winning the series. And then Zach Collins comes back. And now all of a sudden the West is blown open. The Blazers are ultra healthy and who knows? Like, and and so it is, it's really, really disappointing that we didn't get to see that. Um, But yeah, like I, I mean, at the end of the day, just to use a super cliche term, in my view, this comes down to if Damian Lillard is the one immovable piece, is CJ McCollum as your second best player? Can that get you to a championship? And I just don't think that it's possible. Yeah, yeah, agreed. Yeah, and and I and I, th- I think this is the thing is that again we go back to those media narratives is that sometimes the fan base is like you know you must hate CJ you don't want to trade him and that sort of stuff and it's like at the end of the day <laughs> the, these guys only get one shot at a at a a pro career and you're talking about cj mccullum as a guy that was like five foot two until he was you know 14 or 15 years old there's these people are ultra competitive have come up um you know him and dame both come from small programs in college these guys want to win you know they they hate going home in the first round every year and and you know damn well that as their career goes on and they're sort of you know hitting 28 29 30 31 that they definitely want to want to win championships and even potentially think about going on other teams. Thinking about CJ being on another team, um, you know, probably it's more about that loyalty factor around riding with our guys, which I admire. But but because they they are both small guards, who you know, the, it makes the rebounding obviously tougher. Um, you in playoff series, if there's multiple wing threats, then you have to go and put someone like CJ on the on the second or third or maybe even fourth wing threat in terms of defense, um, it makes the rest of the, the roster tough to construct around those two guys. Um, and CJ has been put in that role as the second best player. You know, people talk about that. Obviously, he's on, he's on a, a close to max deal. But the thing is, the way that the salaries work, he will be getting that max deal regardless. You know, that that type of player commands that type of salary either from the home team or or in the free agent market and because Portland is a small market then you also have to overpay to get players so I I, I would yeah I'd love to see some moves potentially some moves being made uh, on the margins to improve the team but I think that a bigger move needs to be made because the reality is that you look at a team like the Orlando Magic is probably a poor example, um, but teams that are on the fringes of the playoffs, or even maybe you know first perennial first rounders like the Blazers, you you can't continue to pay guys and keep paying and paying. So all of a sudden now, when we're talking about paying Powell, and I know Anthony Simons had a good season, all of a sudden you have to pay him. Um, and now if Nurkic gets his contract guaranteed and has a good year next year. 
and then all of a sudden you have to pay him, you're talking like that's actually not physically possible. Like no teams have ever just said to 10 dudes here, we're going to pay 250 million. So at some point, the rubber has to hit the road in terms of going to a replacement level center or um, going to a cheaper shooting guard or Norman Powell becomes the guy. Like at some point that's going to have to happen regardless of, of whether you like the team or you want to trade CJ or you want to blow everything up. At some point, those moves are going to have to be made regardless. Yeah. And I think that what you're, what I think what you're getting at is even if you can't trade CJ for equal value, then maybe the sum of whatever that trade would be, or maybe that's a three team trade, or maybe it's that trade plus another, that the result is that you don't get equal value talent, but that the fit is better. And look at, I mean, a good model of this, and I know the NBA has moved on from this style of basketball, but the the best Blazers team in recent memory, or the best Blazers team with Dame on it, was the 2015 team before Wesley Matthews blew his Achilles. Yeah. And look at the construction of that, that five-person starting lineup. You had Damian Lillard, then you had Wesley Matthews, super good defender, right? Yeah. Nicola Batum, versatile defender, plus defender. LaMarcus Aldridge was a good defender when he wanted to be. And then Robin Lopez, also a plus defender in his limited role. Yes. You had Dame and four people who could actually play defense, yeah. right? Wesley Matthews could shoot. Batum could shoot. LaMarcus Aldridge could shoot. And, you know, actually, it's funny because Robin Lopez is now in 2021 bombing threes, <laughs> which is not something I ever would have thought in 2015, right? Yeah. But so I think, <laughs> exactly. So I think that what, what, what you would want is for your general manager to be creative about, yes, you have CJ, he's on a big contract, but maybe you swindle a team into convincing them that CJ given a bigger role can be better that maybe CJ, I mean, the same way that Dame is not benefiting from CJ being next to him, that they're mirroring his skills. It's the same thing with CJ. And so that maybe a team sees CJ as being able to take another half step up and you can look at how well he played before he got injured this year and maybe say, maybe he can be a 25, 26 point score. Who knows? And get something around Damian Lillard that just fits better. And you, what you would hope is that even if you can't get equal value, you know, like player for player for someone like CJ, because he is on that massive contract that maybe with the fit being better, that your team's ceiling would be higher. And I think, you know, CJ McCollum is owed what, like, uh, $30 million next year. Um, and then his contract runs through 2024. Yeah. Um, so yeah, I mean, he's, <laughs> he's paid a lot of money, right. But so that's maybe the theory of that is that you're able to just craft a better fit around Damian Lillard and that that can raise your team's ceiling. Yeah. Yeah. Agreed. And that, that that's always been the issue has been fit. It's, it's never been that CJ, you know, isn't a good shot creator or whatever. He's a great player. He's awesome. At hundred percent, he's a, he's a great player, and he is at at the highest level. Um, he's actually a really strong playoff performer. Now I know he didn't have a good series this series, but as someone that can create their own shot in lots of situations when the game slows down, that's why you see in clutch situations like um, you know twenty nineteen uh, playoffs um, at the end of the game, uh, the the one the playoff game against play-in game against Memphis Grizzlies last year. You know, th th these are the type of situations that a guy like him succeeds in. The issue is that when you need to get a stop on the other end, then you're struggling because you have that 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 roster construct where um, you can't match up against the bigger wings. So, yeah, I think I think that that um, I think that's a pretty fair that's a pretty fair observation, and 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 I wouldn't I wouldn't mind if there's some sort of move that were to bring back other pieces uh, next. What what are your thoughts overall on on Yusuf Nurkic as a long as a long term option? Because he's a guy that I love, and I feel like he doesn't get enough love nationally uh, for being an amazing passer. Um, positionally, there's not many guys who positionally uh, who who put themselves in the right position defensively. You no know, great footwork, um, great hands. Obviously, he's got big hands, big wingspan. Um, I. I feel he doesn't get a lot of love for being you know, probably a a top 10 center around that in the league. Yeah, I mean, it's an interesting question because in this series against Denver, Nurkic was the Blazers' second best player. Yeah. And it like his on-off numbers, and I don't usually like to look at individual plus minus as an end-all be-all, but it really closely matched the eye test where it was like Nurkic on the court, the Blazers were blowing the nuggets out of the water. 
And that just shows you his impact. And he was doing that against the presumptive MVP and Nikola Jokic. Um, and there were so many stretches during that series where Nurkic was super focused. He was very disciplined. He knew what he needed to do. I mean, after game one, it was so obvious that, you know, Jokic had a single assist and he was scoring a bunch, but in his post game uh, comments, uh, Nurkic was like, that's fine. If he goes off, that's what we want him to do. He wasn't, he wasn't embarrassed by that. He knew what his, what the game plan was. He stuck to it. The problem with Nurkic is his focus. Um, his mental discipline does seem to sag yeah. at times, which is a huge bummer, right? Yeah. And um, so, yeah, I mean, Yusuf Nurkic at his best could definitely be the Blazers' second best player. It's just a question of whether he's going to grow into that role or not. And I have to say, like, I am less encouraged after watching this series that he can do that consistently. Yeah. Um, I mean, just, I don't know if, like, Maybe it didn't stick out to you as much, but I I noticed when the Blazers were up double digits in game six in the third quarter, and there was that foul, right? Nurkic fouled Jokic while Jokic was shooting a three. And after that, he wanted Stotts to challenge it. He's like, Stotts, please challenge this call. And Terry Stotts didn't challenge it. And you saw Nurkic line up uh, to as Jokic is shooting the free throws, and Nurkic is head in his hands, and he's shaking. He's so upset. And then he was just out of the game mentally after that. And yeah. that sucks. Like, so I don't know. It's really tough. Um, yeah. He's, he's an amazing player when he's on, but he's just not always on. Yeah. Agreed. And and I think that, that, that that's reflected in like his, um, his field goal percentage and around the rim and that sort of stuff. Here's a guy who has, I would consider athletically, there's very few guys um, that are seven foot and, you know, around 200 and well, he's between 260 and 280. Um, that have that type of touch, you know, um, like he can like dunk it and, and he has a little bit of athleticism for a guy of that size. Um, and he has great touch and, and anticipation in terms of like knowing where to be and uh, just so many things he does athletically right. But what you'll see is just when the, the team needs to, they really need a bucket either to break momentum or something like that, all of a sudden he will go for, pull up for a long two. Um, or he'll drive into someone and give up an offensive foul. Now, yep, yeah. sometimes the Blazers do get a rough whistle. Hey, look, it, it is what it is. But, but It happens. It does happen. But from time to time, you'll see him make two or three bad plays in a row, um, which it's, it's, it's frustrating because you know how good he can be. You know, you'll see him play amazing defense where he uses great physicality and verticality to, you know, to, to contest a shot. Um, and then he'll get an offensive rebound, a putback, and end one. Like, but his consistency is probably something that needs to be a bit better. I, I also think though that he he talked about his he talked about being unhappy with his role. I I think that there's a world oh, yeah. where where Nurkic can potentially be a, like a number two or number three option on a on a on a good team. But he needs to look internally, and then I also think that the team probably needs to look at his role. And I'm not saying that he needs more shots, um, but here's a guy that should be taking trail threes when he's wide open. Like that, that's the kind of shot that, that you want him, want him to get. And then yeah, you want to be always be able to get him on the mismatch. So it's about how he fits as part of this Blazers team as well. It's a weird kind of chicken and egg thing where it's, I think if he had a slightly bigger role, that maybe that would help with his consistency. If he knew and trusted that he was always going to see the ball next time, or if not next time, the time after, maybe that would help kind of calm him mentally. On the other hand, you can't develop a role for him. That's bigger. If you can't rely on him, right? Like, cause I, I think that he does in particular, I think he has more growth as a facilitator. The passes he's able to see are elite. Like there are some passes that he makes that virtually no one else in the league can make. And the timing on them is impeccable. And he passes people open. Yes. It's pretty Elite incredible. Sport. Right. And, but, and I think that if under perhaps under a different coach, under a different system that you could develop him into somebody who would get more touches and they rely on his playmaking a little bit more. And maybe if he knew he had that role, maybe he wouldn't feel as bad if he made one mistake. But I, I do think that, he has to be honest with himself. And here I am playing armchair psychologist. Like, I don't know Yusuf Nurkic. Like he's not my friend or anything. Right. But um, 
I do think that there is a give and take. If, if, if he were given a big, bigger role, would it help calm him and settle him? Or are you then just like putting even more of your faith in a player that's unreliable? And I don't think we know the answer to that. Yeah, agreed. And, and I think that consistent fitness is probably, it's been tough for him. You know, we saw um, the shape that he got in prior to the season being canceled due to COVID like that was amazing. Here's a guy who'd been out for over a year, and I mean, he's he was he might have even been down to two sixty then or two fifty five or something. You know, he was in the, his best shape, and then obviously he had issues with family and and like thing you know things like that happen. But the team needs to be built in a way where um, other players fit yeah fit well with the other pieces like 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 we talked about. So probably ripping to the next the next one would be uh, talking about the threes and fours on the roster. Uh, probably Derek Jones Jr. is the first one. I feel like it hasn't really been talked about enough. Um, I'd heard that when he first dropped out of the rotation, it was there was some off-court bullshit happening or something. Now, look, look that could have contributed oh, to one game, you know, but at the end of the day, you don't just cut the guy right out of the rotation for no reason. W- what's your take on that? I, I actually hadn't heard that. That's interesting. I guess it would make sense. I mean, the way I saw it was that the Blazers were better without him. Yeah. Like the, the Blazers starting lineup without him in it was among the best starting lineups in the league. And their offensive rating for that, that small part at the end of the season was not just among the best in the league. It was like among the best historically. And I know some of that is shaded by there's so much offense in today's NBA yeah. You're seeing a lot of records break. And on the flip side, too, by the way, with bad defense, it's the same thing. You're seeing historically bad defenses across the NBA because the offense is so good, right? So um, I think part of it was it just is it was working without him. And I do think that people who criticize Coach Stotts for taking him out of the rotation, maybe that's fair. But then I also think you have to look to last year when Derek Jones Jr. was with the Miami Heat. And Coach Eric Spolstra took him out of the lineup for the playoffs. And I've heard people say, well, no, it's because he was injured. That's not what I've found in the reporting. He was cleared to play before the Miami Heat made their title run. He was cleared to play before the first round of the playoffs. And yet he didn't play that much. Um, And he's an inconsistent shooter off the top of my head. I think he had his best shooting from deep this year. And that's not surprising. That happens a lot with players in Coach Stotts' offense. We saw it with Mo Harkless, saw it with Al Farouk Um, but I, to me, the simple answer is he, he didn't, he didn't fit. He didn't fit well enough and you couldn't rely on him enough offensively. And I honestly, also, I do think his defense was a little bit overrated, but, um, I don't know. I think the theory of Derek Jones jr. Is maybe a little better than the actual Derek Jones jr. But he's still pretty young. What is he like 24? Um, so I don't know. That's my take. I think it's really as simple as Stotts was cutting down his rotation at the end of the year to get to like an eight person playoff rotation. And Jones just wasn't fitting and the Blazers were doing really, really well. I mean, they ended the year as hot as you possibly could be. Um, so that was my take on it at the time. Yeah. Yeah. I know that's, that's fair, man. I, I think that what I, what I liked out of him at the start of the season and we, and when he was signed was that he was a great offensive rebounder. Um, he forced turnovers, which this team, was absolutely terrible at the last couple of seasons. Um, he was good at blocking shots as a help guy, um, but he also seemed to be part of the group at the start of the season, which was fouling like mad, and that was taking me back to last season was just an absolute killer. Fouling in situations where, you know, you team's already in the bonus and you're just you're just fouling guys or you're fouling early to get the team into the bonus, you know. Um, so I... I feel like there could have been some break glass situations where potentially he could have been used. Um, but I don't, I don't know if he would have helped in the playoffs. At the end of the day, he probably wouldn't have been guarded. Um, and if, and if you're not guarding a guy means that he probably can't play with Nurkic. Um, and then if his defense isn't at being, isn't being played at the highest levels, then he probably can't play with Cantor and Mello in the second unit as well, or even just one of them. So I, I, I understand that. It'd be interesting to see, does he have a player? I'm not sure if he has a player option or if he has a team option. Um, what are you, are you certain on that? I use the dunked on cap sheets, and it just says. Really yeah, that's what I'm using too. Yeah, um, yeah <laughs> dunked on. Uh, hello, fellow dunked on <laughs> subscriber. Um, it is a player option, okay. um, and I think you know some of the some of the thinking, which I tend to agree with, is well, the Blazers used the mid level exception on this guy. They gave him a role. 
and then all of a sudden the role was taken away from him. Why would he want to resign here after that? Now, maybe you could say, well, hey, the coach that did that to you is gone. So come on back. Like, and I think that's valid too, right? Yeah. Like the same thing where people were saying, and not just people were saying, but that I think it was pretty obvious Nurkic in his post game comments after game six was, you know, he was saying, I'm not sure this is the right fit for me. I think he was talking about the coaching. Well, the coach isn't here anymore, right? Yeah. The same thing with Derek Jones Jr. So, um, I don't know. I, I think it, I think the possibility of him picking up his option, it's an $11 million option. It's it's more likely with Stotts no longer here because now, you know, the GM, whether it's still Olshay or the new coach, they can now pitch Derek Jones Jr. on a different theory of what the offense and defense is going to look like. Um, yeah. yeah. So, but I guess time will tell. Yeah, agreed. Yeah. So, in, in terms of the other players that, that, that were there this year, um, I... I'm a Robert Covington fan, and I think that if if we if we looked at his his year, I'd say he had a pretty good year. He started out terribly, but I mean the team was all over the place at the start of the year. He is best described as a streaky shooter, um, and I think that his his percentage, <laughs> if you look at his percentage, people will be like he's only a thirty five percent shooter, but he only takes threes. So for a volume guy to be around that thirty five thirty six percent mark, I think he finished at thirty eight percent. Uh, this regular season that like that's a great you know that's a great um that's a great percentage in terms of a volume guy not he was never a great man defender and and like we we knew that coming in but I think we saw down the stretch of plenty of regular season games that he made great defensive plays um but from time to time he was asked to do a little bit much on offense and I and I feel that 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 is it was a little bit of a reflection on the system and probably the lack of other personnel was there. He he had to take, and I think someone sh- I think shared it in terms of him being one of the better three and D players. His um how how his shot quality and how many of his shots were contested. He's a guy that had a pretty good percentage. A lot of his shots were contested, and because of the 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 way that the the Blazers were potentially if he was playing with Cantor or if he was playing with Mello, um, here's a guy that you were asking to create a little bit off the bounce and then you were complaining that he was making turnovers at end, ends of games. What did you think about his year this year? Yeah, I think you summarized it pretty well. Bad start came around near the end. And I think one thing that I, it really stuck to me as you were saying it was how much he was asked to do. Um, and I think that for a team that has a non-modern NBA defensive structure that doesn't have the best defensive pieces he was asked to do a lot on defense too, um, as was Nurkic. I think this is actually true of both Nurkic and Covington, that maybe some of the mental fatigue with Nurkic was that he was, he was asked to be a backstop for a defense that didn't have much going for it. And I think with Covington, it's the same thing. I mean, look at the Denver series. Like when Nurkic was out, uh, you know, Covington was trying to guard Nikola Jokic. That's a, tall task i mean that is and and then if he's not doing that he's being asked to jump passing lanes and just like he's being asked to do a lot right so i do think that he did what the team needed from from him i think that his impact was probably beyond what the stats would demonstrate and maybe this is just me being like a bad analyst but like i when i'm looking at it now i'm on basketball reference and it's like it just seems like he was more impactful than than what these stats are showing. Yeah. Um, and part of that could have been the system to your point, both offensively and defensively. Yeah. Yeah. And I think he had really low usage and it's probably tough because people say, you know, we, we traded our first round picks for him, but I'm pretty sure that his low, his usage was one of, I should bring his stats up. His usage usage was one of the lowest that we'd seen um, for, for his career. Um, but I think probably it's important to look at the other guys that would, that were there. Um, Carmelo Anthony is the next one. Really tough one. I killed Mello a little bit at the start of the season, and I and there was a crazy someone that started a fan account that was ratioing the crap out of me. Um, he actually ended up having a pretty good year, but I, it's tough because you you ask again, you're asking a guy to play to, you know twenty twenty five minutes a night. Now he's clearly up to that offensively in some ways. Um, that that the issues that I had were that. Um, because he's not a threat off the bounce anymore, then that means that teams were able to guard him differently. I um, you know, he's not able to really make layups anymore. Um, and then right. because of because he's lost a little bit of that dynamic, like his how dynamic he used to be, is that his off the dribble game 
even though he'll make some of those highlight shots off the dribble, when you're only hitting, you know, around 37, 38% on mid-range twos, like they'll give you, they will give, teams will give that up all the time. Like they'll be like, okay, that's fine to give that. Um, because at the end of the day, it's either that or it's Damian Lillard at um, 39% from three and whatever that is, 1.15 points per possession. It's a massive difference. But the problem is if you play them 20 to 25 minutes, then on the other end, because of your other defensive personnel that are small, then he has to he has to guard one of the wing threats. Basically, he was a big on defense. So I'm not really sure how I, I feel about it, but at the end of the day, he's not able to defend anyone anymore. I think that potentially he had too many minutes this season. Yeah, I have a, I have a couple thoughts. And one is, does a championship team play a 37-year-old Carmelo Anthony 25 minutes a game in a critical playoff series? And the answer is no, right? Like, um, and, and everything you said about his athletic decline, again, he's older and he's not LeBron, who is athletically just a freak of nature. And there are very few people who can be as effective as someone like LeBron is that late into their career. Carmelo Anthony is like the other 95% of basketball players who eventually end up declining. But I think it's it's a very interesting if you compare the way that Carmelo Anthony shoots today compared to when he was in his prime in the Knicks it's pretty it's it's very obvious and striking how how much lift he's lost on his shots so like you're saying it's not just about his speed and getting around people and being a threat other than just shooting it's even when he does shoot he doesn't create that vertical separation that he used to that made him such an elite shooter right with a hand in his face so that's part of it um then the other part I did want to ask you about this as it relates to Carmelo Anthony so when he first got here, and I'm again just pulling off the top of my head, something that Neil Olshay said about him was a- about the Blazers that we are now the custodians of Carmelo Anthony's legacy. And to me, I took that as I have I Neil Olshay have promised Carmelo Anthony a certain number of minutes, and he will get those minutes no matter what because he's very popular. He's a Hall of Fame player, and he's going to help potentially tell other players that Portland is really cool and they keep their promises. And that part of the reason why they signed him was to basically is a, is a, is a internal PR move to try to get other players to think highly of Portland. Mm. Do you, what, what is your thoughts about that? Do you think that Olshay promised a role to Carmelo Anthony? Yeah. So I, I'm pretty sure that when he was signed, not this season, but last the, the previous season that, um, he was promised some sort of a role. My issue is that that even if like like even if I disagree with that, that at the time he had no market because he was out of the league, so we shouldn't have done that anyway. Um, saying that that the when you have injuries and you're looking down the ten day market, you're like, well, there's a Man Shumpert, J.R. Smith. You know what I mean? Like there weren't exactly lots and lots of great guys out there, but you've promised a guy with no market a role. Um, and then this season, when he had, he probably had a market in terms of, I'd say, biannual, you know, five million a year or something like that. Then what's actually happened is um, he's taken less money, and then has his camp or his agent been like, well, he's he's taken less money to come there, so you better do this, that, or the other. And then now you and I go back to the um, uh, the movie Moneyball where I think about Brad Pitt basically <laughs> trading guys so coaches don't play them, um, is that we kill Coach Stotts for, for playing whoever it is, but at the end of the day, he can still only he can still only do the best with the roster that he has. And if if off the bench there, your bench creation is Anthony Simons can't, you know, not a great not a great passer at all for a guard. And is he a little developing, not a good passer yet, Ennis Cantor but in terms of centers, one of the weaker passes, then Carmelo Anthony is probably a better passer. He can create his own shot. You have him in there, but then you looked at some of the defensive ratings of the units that he was playing in, and like Clint, I use Clint the Glass for example, and they're in the bottom ten percent of the entire league. So I don't, I don't like that these sort of. Um, these assurances around minutes or, or role or whatever had had been given, um, and I think that it would be it would be a dangerous precedent to bring him back next year, um, even if you know he shot forty percent from three. It's like, 
you can get like if you sign Glenn Robinson the third or any, there's there's guys out there who could potentially shoot that who would give you more in rebounding and defense on the other end. And look, you're probably going to be able to get them for between two and four million a year. I just don't see the reason why Carmelo should come back for a third year. I agree. And I think that the two years he was here was awesome. And honestly, it was pretty cool. Like I remember having discussions long ago uh, with my godfather. We were arguing back and forth about who was better, Brandon Roy or Carmelo Anthony. Like I remember that like very distinctly, right? Like back in B-Roy's prime. And it's kind of cool that like we've gotten to this point where now it's like Carmelo Anthony's on the Blazers. Like, I know, like it's it's kind of neat, cool. right? But but it doesn't it doesn't contribute to the highest levels of winning basketball. It just doesn't. And so I'm with you. Like, I think the smart move would be to to let him do his thing now. If it, he probably still does have a little bit of value to some teams around the league who might have a role for him. Um, but the Blazers are, are you know ostensibly a winning team, a team that wants to maximize the prime of Damian Lillard, who is a fringe MVP candidate. And so maybe the time has come for Carmelo Anthony to move on. I would say this though, if he were willing to come back and basically be given no assurances, because again, I'm, I personally am assuming, I think he was promised minutes. Maybe that's wrong, but I think he was. If he came back and had no promise of minutes and just sort of appeared every now and again, I'd be okay with that. That'd be fine. Yeah. But I don't know if that's what Carmelo Anthony wants. Yeah, yeah, me too. I, I agree hundred percent. If he was able to come back on that smaller role as a spot shooter, then I'd be fine with that. Um, yeah. So we've, we've sort of talked about more of the, or all of the main players there. What, how, how do you feel about the, the the youth development in terms of of the other guys that are there? I had Nazir Little's father on my podcast a couple of weeks ago, and Nazir's a player. Okay. His his dad was a great man. Nazir's a player who just listened to his story and then of talking about his work ethic and just seeing the way that he plays. He's a guy that I could I feel could potentially have a decent third or fourth season jump. Um, and I actually like, I like Anthony Simon's jump and that he had in his, um, in his third season as well. So, so looking, looking at it now and the way that other players have developed, um, how do you feel about those, those younger guys and, and how they could potentially play a role next season? I uh, I agree with you on both counts. Like to see what Anthony Simons did with a more consistent role and consistent minutes. And look, I mean, he became one of the key rotation players down the stretch of the season and then into the playoffs. And I thought he really stepped into that role nicely. Um, with Nas Little, it's it's you can see those pops and flashes, right? I mean, I think it's important to remember like both of those guys are super young. Yeah. I think Simons is still. 21 and Nas Little is a year younger, right? Um, They've got a lot of time to develop, right? And so kind of what you're looking for is like, what are those flashes and those pops? um, And you hope that, that they can, they can build on that in the years to come. I think for someone like Simons, I think again, if the Blazers were to trade CJ McCollum and let's say they were able to retain Norm Powell, um, I think that that would create rotations where Simons could maybe develop even more um, and take use of his skills more. And the same thing, like if the Blazers don't bring back Ennis Cantor, if they don't bring back Mello, maybe there's more room for a player like Nas Little to get more run. Um, yeah, it's I, I'm encouraged. And then also like Zach Collins, I mean, that's a question too. He's not quite as young as those two, but Zach Collins, the same thing. Like the theory of Zach Collins being a good defending floor stretching big with energy who doesn't take shit from anybody like that's kind of that's a the theory of that is great right if it works um so yeah for like as much as the blazers do on on one level feel like an aging team and they are on some level they also do have a couple of pieces that make you feel at least kind of good about next year and the years moving forward so yeah i guess i guess we'll just have to see yeah agreed and i and i think that that, that zach can still potentially be that piece um i obviously you touched a little bit on Norman Powell. I I think because Norm Norm is we haven't talked about him yet. I think because Norm has the big wingspan and he's physical, really strong, and he can cut to the rim, even if even if he, you know, is say ten or twenty percent less than CJ and like well, like we could people could argue back and forth over that. The reality is that he's not going to get um, three years, 100 million, you know, like his market and free agency is probably going to be between 14 and 22 or something like that. Like there's not, I think when is that 
what what the average fan didn't realize is that his market was huge when there was a ton of cap space in this year's market before everyone got extensions or traded out of that. Now some team some like some teams potentially may still look to make him an offer, but also there's no reason why when the trade wasn't put together and the sums happens with trades, is that in is that the agents already reached out and there's some sort of wink wink deal with the Blazers. Now if he was to come back on twenty million over if it was eighty over four then I would be, I still would be comfortable with him being the starting two guard next to, um, next to Dame, and that you would use the CJ pieces to potentially get a little bit of salary break, uh, and then bring back some other guys that were wings and potentially a backup big. I really love Powell's game, and I know he's not a great defender, um, but the his offensive fit is a lot better because he's a legitimate cutter, um, you know, really aggressive guy like that. Oh yeah, his cutting. It's it's funny when you see someone like CJ and Dame play so deliberately and with such pace. And then you see Norm Powell and he's just sort of like, you know, like it's very like frantic energy, frenetic energy. And it's like, you need some of that, right? Like you need some of that, I think both to kind of shake the other team and make them a little bit uncomfortable. But also I do, I, I'm a big believer in the human element of basketball. And I think seeing that does something too, right? Um, and not to mention, I am sorry if you if you did mention it, I missed it, but that you know Norm Powell is like one of the best three point shooters from the corner, right? Yes. So he can play that role too. Yeah, um, yeah I I agree with you. Like that, it, it, the the problem is a even if CJ were on a favorable contract, the, the first thing is will Olshay trade him? And Olshay's comments during his presser today gave me no confidence mm. that he's changed his mind where it's like, I'm never trading CJ basically is what the feeling's been. But then B, even if you're willing to trade him, like what would that return look like? Because I agree with you. I think Dame at the one and Powell at the two, it just opens up so many other possibilities for you. And, and really quick back to Simons, I was just looking like he shot 42% yes. from deep this year, right on four and a half attempts. And he wasn't even playing 20 minutes a game. Yeah. So you can't really extrapolate that out. Like the more opportunity you get, your percentages are probably going to go down a little bit, but yeah, there's, there's a little bit to like, and I think the Blazers have a very narrow needle to thread, but it's possible. Um, yeah. Yeah. Agreed. Yeah. And I, I think I, I looked up Anthony, Anthony Simon's uh, synergy. It was probably about three or four weeks ago. Um, and he he was one of the best. Uh, he was either up, it was one or two around uh, catch and shoot guys, and I know not doing a lot of catch and shoot from two, but he was basically at the top there for for high volume guys. And and it, you have, I think you have the pieces there where the where you can make things fit a little bit better um, if you're able to bring in you know potentially it's like a playmaking four that can defend a little bit you know like could be Thaddeus Young like and I and I'm not sure how I haven't dived really deep into these opportunities but at the end of the day you when when you're moving CJ you're looking for someone else that can fit better with the other pieces that were there so a proper power forward um now because of the Blazers offense is always going to be great with with Damian Lillard you can afford to be like hey look our projections at the start of the year we're projecting that we're going to have between the second and fifth offense in the league. Now, when you're sliding the sliders on 2K, as we talked about before, <laughs> you, you're definitely willing to bring the defense up from 29th and take a little bit out of that offense. Like, there's no... That, that, that offense is still going to get you. It's going to get you a 500 record most years. But if you were able to bring in some pieces who said, hey, look, maybe, maybe someone's a good passer on the short roll. Now, if they're a really good passer on the short roll then they're going to be a really great fit uh, with Damian Lillard. And then as potentially like Anthony Simons, you've seen a little bit out of him in the pick and roll. All of a sudden, you're like, oh, we've got, Nazir Little can hit a corner three. Um, we've got other guys here that are able to do this. You're bringing in someone who's a big that can play some defense and just has some other skills. Yeah, they might not be able to shoot 40% from three, but they're guys that are going to raise the level of this team and probably give the, the bench some defense um, and then be someone that can, that can make the odd play that that's basically what they need. And it, it doesn't have to be a max guy. Like the reality is there's probably only one or two, maybe three people out there. You can bring actually there may be zero that you can bring back for CJ on a deal like that, because a, you don't always get value B. It could be a salary dump. 
usually it has to be a combination of guys. Yeah. And if you don't mind, if I could do a little advertising plug for my site, uh, we like the Blazers. I did this giant 7,000 word kind of a retrospective and prospective. Uh, And I talked a little bit about Powell and I just a a quick excerpt from there where I said, having Damon Powell as your one, two would be a nice fit. It's less of a great fit with Dame CJ and Powell as your one, two, three, which is what you're talking about. But if Powell wants a bigger role, can you find a trade for CJ in time to convince him that that role is there? And even if you could do that, would he even want to be in Portland anyway? And so I think like there's so much of this, so much uncertainty about the the coaching, the front office, that there's a potential power struggle between Damian Lillard and Neil Olshay. What is Jody Allen doing? And so like the timing, if you were even to your point, if you're going to get uh, a player who's not like a, a one-to-one to CJ McCollum's talent, how are you going to be able to sequence that in a way where you can afford it, um, convince Powell to stay, um, if you're going to convince Derek Jones Jr. to stay or not? Um, and it's just, it's a very interesting and tricky time. And the worst case scenario, the, the Blazers could be left with massive contracts and no way to replace the talent that leaves. Um, and it's just, it's a rough time. I mean, the other thing too, if, if coaches are thinking, well, geez, the GM may be on the outs. Are they going to want to come to Portland if they think at some point Neil O'Shea is going to get cut? Uh, it's just, yeah, it's just a very, very tricky time. Yeah, agreed. Yeah, and it's it's tough, man. I think that this that there's some there's still some great pieces on this team, and um, you know, there's there's chances that you potentially, if you were to make a move, that you could you could attach one or two of these young guys. But at the moment. Um, lots is happening around the team um, and really have to wait for the playoffs to finish and, and you know, dive a bit deeper and be like, you know, how, how can how, how can this team get better without its picks? Now, I mean, I, I think filling the back end of the roster with some, um, with potentially some good second round picks. We've seen Neil has bought second round picks in the past, you know, bought, bought picks for, I think, Gary Trent Jr. was one that they bought and, um, I'd like to potentially see guys in the second round that that could work out down the line, so you could still continue to have some youth movement if you ever have to blow things up completely. Um, but will be interesting to see um, what what other moves are made in free agency. If so, if quick question to you: If Derek Jones Jr. opts out, does that mean that the Blazers get to re- reuse their mid level next season, this coming upcoming season? Ooh, cap question. I don't know the answer to that, so I'm not even gonna try. Not even gonna try. Um, sorry that I that I don't. That's know. all right. Um, because I was thinking like <laughs> if he opts in, obviously. Um, I don't know if they have. I should have my my dunked on cap sheets open. Nate, 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 and Danny would be so upset that I'm not using them. Um, yeah, can we get can we get Nate in here to give us the answer <laughs> on that? <laughs> um, but at the moment, it's looking like it's only going to be veterans minimums to improve the team, right? Yeah. yeah. And it's just, I mean, this is an expensive team. If you bring everybody back, I mean, it's, it's just, it's rough. And like I said, I mean, it's a tight needle to thread and fundamentally, if you're the GM, there's a massive difference between thinking everybody on the roster, except Dame is possibly up for being reevaluated and a difference between that and everybody except for Dame and CJ because as soon as you put the and CJ in, I just think it makes things much, much harder. Um, not only from from trying to balance your books, but really the number of permutations that you could put around Damian Lillard to maximize him. Because really that's what it is. Is like If we were just to sit down and think about the types of players you could surround with Damian Lillard, and then you think about that same thing, but it's both Dame and CJ, it limits you a whole lot right? Just because of the type of player that CJ McCollum is. And it doesn't mean he's not an amazing player because he totally is. It's just, that's, that's the problem with having two players who their skill sets do not complement each other very well. Um, if at all. So yeah. 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 Agreed, man. Yeah. And, and that's what makes this a fascinating off season. Um, because CJ has three years left, three years left is the perfect amount of time to move someone. You know, if you move them with two, if there's an injury or potentially something else happens with your team, you know, three years is the perfect amount of time. Um, the only other one would would potentially be Nurkic, um, but I think that his 
his value is probably a little bit lower because of trade because of um injuries in terms of his trade value um but yeah it's look man it's going to be a really interesting season i i definitely enjoyed having you on i think we should probably make this one a little bit more of a regular one um i'd love to to talk a little bit about um the the two veteran minimum signings when they happen but i think i think we can probably you know break some things down you know um potentially on something a bit more regular yeah, no, that'd be fun. And hey, I'm only 36. Maybe they could sign me. Come on, give me a chance. <laughs> you probably paid better, better defense than Carmelo Anthony. Yeah, there we go. <laughs> Who is this unathletic white dude on the court right now? Yeah, <laughs> yeah, yeah. yeah. It's the second coming of CJ Ellaby. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, exactly. <laughs> oh, my god. Awesome. Gosh. Thank you. Um, thank you so much, my man. Thanks for coming on. Uh, where, can, where can listeners find you on um, on the interwebs? Yeah, no, th- thanks for having me on. I appreciate it. Uh, you can find me on Twitter at GoldnerPDX, and you can also find our podcast. It's called We Like the Blazers. It's at welikeTheBlazers.com, or you could search that in any podcatcher. So shout out to my co-host, Ryan Whitledge, on that. But yeah, come come on to Twitter and say hi. Blazers Twitter is a cool place. We were saying, I think, before the show, uh, just like any NBA team community is on Twitter. But yeah, come shout out. Awesome. Thanks heaps, my man. You have a good day. Awesome. You too.